Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spirited and spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning and dedicated to being in right relationship with one another, with ourselves, and with this planet. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people to our right and left and welcoming them here. Since we are doing all of this remotely until uh, cases fall to a safe level in Travis County, we will greet one another in the comments if we have access to comments on our viewing platform. I invite you to join me as we say our chalice lighting words together. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Amanda Gorman is a black American poet and activist. She was named the first ever National Youth Poet Laureate of the United States. This is a selection from the poem she performed at the 2020 presidential inauguration, The Hill We Climb. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. Yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to form a union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. It's because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. For while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour. But within, we feel the power to author a new chapter. We will rebuild, reconcile, and recover. And every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country, our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflamed and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. That reading was chosen by our preacher for today, who is Reverend Dr. Bill Sinkford, one of my favorite ministers in our whole denomination. I wanted to make sure that you got to hear his voice at some point in your life, and today is that day. He was the president of the liberal religious youth back in the day, and then he became the president of our denomination between 2001 and 2009. After that, he was settled as 
the senior minister at our Unitarian Universalist Church in Portland, Oregon, where he still is. I'm going to be preaching there in a pulpit exchange in August, but today we get to have him. He's a scholar, a kind person, a warrior for social justice, and one of the most patient people with this denomination that I have ever met. And we need that patience and persistence that he brings into this Unitarian Universalist world. So I know you will enjoy the things he has to say. I am so delighted to be able to share worship with you this morning. I particularly want to thank your wonderful minister, Meg, for extending the invitation. Her grounded and truth-telling ministry is a blessing to me and to our faith, and it has been for many years. There are some blessings in these COVID days. One is that we have found ways to be present with one another that we couldn't or at least that we wouldn't have imagined before. So I am just delighted to join you this morning virtually. And I want to thank you for your welcome. This congregation created a mission statement and we use it to guide us as we make decisions and move into the future together. We wrote it on the wall of the sanctuary and we normally say it together every Sunday. So please will you say it with me now. Together we nourish souls, transform lives and do justice to build the beloved community. After we say our mission statement, we have a moment for beloved community where we try to consider things we may not have thought of, where those of us who identify as white might get the veil lifted a little bit from our eyes, and even those of us who identify as people of color may not understand everything about how deeply entrenched white supremacy culture is in our nation and in our world. I want you to consider the verdict that was brought down on the murder of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin being convicted of all three counts. I know that a lot of the people who identify as white were completely certain that the jury would return a guilty verdict because the evidence was right in front of our eyes and because the defense seemed so uh, at sea. I know that most of the people of color in our communities were not so certain. Many among us said that they were very surprised at the guilty verdict. And the job of the people who identify as white is to listen and believe those among us who are people of color when they tell us about the way things are. White supremacy culture wants us to say, oh, it's not that bad. I want us to edit that out of our vocabulary, those of us who identify as white, and just listen and believe. I believe you'll hear more about this in Dr. Sankford's sermon. Good morning. 
I want you to pretend that someone comes to you and says, I have a math problem for you to solve. Five plus something. And you think, wait, I five plus what? I can't solve the problem if I don't know what all the parts of it are, right? I need to know the whole problem before I can solve it. If you're a kid, you may have been having conversations with the grown-ups in your life lately about some problems we're having in our country that we've been having for a long time. The problem of people with light skin, skin like mine, people we call white, being really mean and doing bad things to people with darker skin, people we call black. You may not have been having these conversations, too, because sometimes people, especially white grown-ups, find it really hard to talk about this. They think it's scary, or they don't understand it, or they think that if they don't talk about it, you won't notice and that it will be okay. Or they think that someone else will solve the problem. But no one else is going to solve the problem. It's our problem to solve, and we all need to be having these conversations. Today we're going to read a story about a white family who is not having the conversations and the child has to figure out what's going on all by themselves. The good news for us is that we are not all by ourselves. We as a community are all learning together. And my hope is that no matter who you are, how old you are, whether you have other grown-ups to talk to or other kids to talk to, my hope is that you can have these conversations so we can all learn and grow and solve this problem together. Not My Idea, a book about whiteness by Anastasia Higginbottom. When grown-ups try to hide scary things from kids. Oh no, not again. What? Mom, what not again? It's usually because they're scared too. Who is that with their hands up? Why is that policeman screaming at him? They want to bury the truth. You don't need to worry about this. You're safe, understand? No. Our family is kind to everyone. We don't see color. Deep down, we all know color matters. Skin color makes a difference in how the world sees you and in how you see the world. It makes a difference in how much trouble seems to find you or let you be. In stores, in cars, on sidewalks, at school, your skin color affects the most ordinary daily experiences, including which neighborhoods welcome you. You may get the message that racism is happening only to black and brown people. Racism is a white person's problem, and we are all caught up in it. Mostly by refusing to look at it. You can face this. Understanding the truth takes courage, especially a painful truth about your own people, your own family. Even people you love may behave in ways that show they think they are the good ones. Racism was not your idea. You don't need to defend it. You can bring your curiosity to learn about it and see that it's true. A book called Our Shared History. In the book it says, 
In the United States of America, white people have committed outrageous crimes against black people for 400 years. All along, every step of the way, people who love justice and love each other have been fighting back. Many white people did things they never should have done. Many other white people failed to see the problem with this. These choices put wealth and power into white hands, homes, and neighborhoods. Some white people joined the leaders of black liberation. Racism is still happening. It keeps changing and keeps being the same. And yet, just being here, alive in this moment, you have a chance to care about this, to connect. But connecting means opening, and opening sometimes feels like breaking. Uh, Mom, I don't feel so good. I need to know what's going on. What are you talking about? Why, why didn't anyone teach me real history? I do see color. I see yours, mine, and everybody's. You can't hide what's right in front of me. I know that what that police officer did was wrong. Go with your instincts on this one. Racial justice is possible, but only if we're honest with each other and ourselves. Your history's not all written yet. What do you want it to say? Our meditative reading today comes to us from Janata Petrus Nassau, a creative activist, writer, playwright, and multidimensional performance artist who was born on Dakota land, West Indian descended, and African sourced. Her work centers around black wildness, futurism, ancestral healing, sweetness, spectacle, and shimmer. This piece is called, Could We Please Give the Police Departments to the Grandmothers? Could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers, give them the salaries and the pensions and the city vehicles, but make them a fleet of vintage Corvettes, Jaguars, and Cadillacs with white leather interior? Diamond in the back, sunroof top, and digging the scene with a gangster lane. Let the cars be badass. You would hear the old-school jams like Patti LaBelle, Anita Baker, and Al Green. You would hear Sweet Honey and the Rock harmonizing on We Who Believe in Freedom Will Not Rest bumping out the speakers. And they got the booming system. If you're up to mischief, they'll pick you up swiftly in their sweet ride and look at you until you catch shame and look down at your lap. She asks if you're hungry, and you say yes, and of course you are. She got a crown of dreadlocks, and on the dashboard you see brown faces like yours, shea-buttered and loved up. And there are no precincts, just love temples that got spaces to meditate and eat delicious food. Mangoes, blueberries, nectarines, cornbread, peas and rice, fried plantain, foo-foo, yams, greens, okra, pecan pie, salad, and lemonade. Things that make your mouth water and soul arrive. All the hungry bellies know warmth. All the children expect love. The grandmas help you with homework, practice yoga with you, and teach you how to make jambalaya and coconut cake from scratch. When you're sleepy, she'll start humming and rub your back while you drift off. A song that she used to have the record of when she was your age. She remembers how it felt to be like you and be young and not know the world that good. 
Grandma is a sacred child herself, who just circled the sun enough times into the ripeness of her cronehood. She wants your life to be sweeter. When you're wilding out because your heart is broke or you don't have what you need, the grandmas take your hand and lead you to their gardens. You can lay down amongst the flowers, her grasses, roses, dahlias, irises, lilies, collards, kale, eggplants, blackberries. She wants you to know that you are safe and protected, universal, limitless, sacred, sensual, divine, and free. So give the police departments to the grandmas. They are fearless, classy, and actualized, blossomed from love. They wear what they want and say what they please. Believe that. At night, they park the cars in a circle so all can sit in them with the sunroofs down and look at the stars. Talk about astrological signs, what to plant tomorrow based on the moon's mood, and help you memorize Audre Lorde and James Baldwin quotes. She always looks you in the eye and acknowledges the light in you with no hesitation or fear. And Grandma loves you fiercely forever. She sees the pain in our bravado, the confusion in our anger, the depth behind our coldness. Grandma knows what oppression has done to our souls and is going to change it one love temple at a time. She has no fear. This is the time in our service where we enter into an attitude of prayer and meditation together, where we might speak and listen to God as we understand God, or where we might listen to our inner wisdom or just follow our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. So as you are able in the situation in which you find yourself watching this morning, please enter into a state of quietness as we seek clarity and wisdom and courage. I invite you now to light candles, if you have them in your home, for a joy or a sorrow, for a memory or a determination.
are still trying to come to terms with the Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, with what it tells us about ourselves and about our world, and how our faith might be called to respond. At least I am still trying to come to terms with it. Esau Macaulay's 13-year-old son offered his own opinion about the trial. I do not understand why there is a trial. There's a nine-minute video. Macaulay is an Anglican priest and a professor at Wheaton College in Illinois. He writes for the New York Times. Oh, and he's a black man in America. And his son is a black boy. His son, a year older than Tamir Price was when he was murdered in a Cleveland park, playing with a toy gun in his hand. 13, the same age as Adam Toledo, shot in the chest with his hands up in Chicago. Not much younger than 20-year-old Dante Wright, pulled over on a Sunday afternoon for an expired registration, murdered by an experienced policewoman who seemed unable to distinguish a yellow plastic taser from her heavy hand. Three years younger than Makia Bryant, killed in Columbus, just 30 minutes before the Chauvin verdict was announced. There are too many other police shootings of black Americans. Too many. I lacked good answers for my son, Macaulay writes, especially in a moment when the trial of George Floyd's murderer was not the only reminder of our country's deep racial injustice when people of color, even children, encounter the police. What would you say to Esau Macaulay's son, or to the daughters and sons of this congregation, in a week when George Floyd's murderer was convicted, and when other black children were killed by the police? What would you say? What should we say? There is a lot at stake these days. Much is being decided, and we know it. Not just the verdict in one trial, at least that is the way it felt to me. It feels like our system is on trial. Could you feel the weight of the decision that was being made? Did you find it hard at times to draw breath? I felt like I was holding my breath. Not literally, not quite, but holding my breath, waiting to exhale. This sermon, this sermon is in the service of all of our breath. Why is there even a trial, the 13-year-old asked. Can't we believe our eyes and our ears and our common sense? Why can't the rules of common sense and fairness apply to him too? What story will you tell about that verdict? Will you celebrate the care our system takes to protect the innocent? Innocent until proven guilty. Former Officer Chauvin was certainly given his day in court. Innocent until proven guilty. Is that an adequate answer for that 13-year-old who knows that his life is in danger when the police pull up? What will you say? What will you say about our system's care for George Floyd's innocence, or even his guilt. Will you say 
that our system finally delivered justice. That faced with that nine and a half minute video record and the testimony of the passersby who begged the police to care for George Floyd's life, and the testimony of all those experts and even the chief of police, faced with the eyes of the world and with the certainty that the streets of cities across the country would erupt if the verdict was innocent, faced with all that, will you say that our system finally worked? Oh, it does need a little adjustment, but our system deserves preservation. It has proven that it can work. Is that what you will say? Or will you say that our system, faced with all of that, barely managed to avoid complete failure? Is that closer to the story that you will tell? That it took all of that to find one police officer guilty? That we escaped almost certain calamity, perhaps collapse of our system, at the very least violence on our streets again? What will you say? And what will this church say? What is the sermon this church needs on this day, in these days, from a Unitarian Universalist minister who is black? Here's the problem, at least one of the problems, one dilemma. I have not said a thing that you do not already know. You already knew about the killings by police. You knew about the overwhelming case against the former Officer Chauvin. You knew that the nation was holding its breath. You knew when I asked the question that there is no good answer to Esau Macaulay's son. The only answer, the only honest answer, is that there is no good answer until we dismantle the structures and the culture that keeps repeating these patterns of violence and oppression and there will not be a good answer until a new day dawns in this nation. There's a lot to be present to. I want to start with the verdict itself. I was relieved, so relieved, when Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges. Relieved that he was convicted of the murder that we all saw over and over and over on that video. I was able to exhale, but I felt no joy. I was not happy to hear the verdict. Happy is not a word that describes what I felt. Because that verdict does not change the practices of policing. As the murders of other black Americans since the verdict demonstrated. And punishment for Chauvin? Well, he does need to be punished because... That is how our system deals with crime. It deals with it by punishing. We have a punishment system, not a public safety system, and certainly not a prevention system. Angel Kyoto Williams has it right that this verdict comes in far too vast an ocean of violence against black bodies, and that justice cannot be served against one man when an entire system, a nation, a history raised him that way. Chauvin is a product of the culture we have failed thus far to change. Well, punishment can be rendered upon Chauvin, but justice 
Justice speaks a different language and sees with a wider and a wiser vision. Where should our focus be as a religious community? Where should we start? Do you remember the initial police report of George Floyd's murder? Here it is. Two officers arrived and located the suspect. He was ordered to step from the car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs, handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center, where he died a short time later. The statement stressed that no weapons were used. Is that what you saw on that video? So first, let's start with telling the truth. Let's start with a system that condemns the lies rather than rewarding them. Let's start with a system that is worthy of our trust. Second, let's try to make that verdict the watershed moment it might become. Now, there's no guarantee. Let me be very clear. Time and time and time again, the system has found ways to protect itself from real change. This culture is skilled at preserving power. So, elimination of qualified immunity. Yes, absolutely. A national database of police killings. Yes, it doesn't exist now. The network of 1,800 independent police forces means that we rely on news reports and court records much later to even guess how many incidents there were. Yes, let's call for changing the laws that govern police use of force. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act needs to be on our advocacy agenda. But we need to use a lens that sees beyond these specific changes to policing protocols. Because police violence against black and brown bodies is only an enforcement mechanism for a system that keeps black and brown and poor white communities under-resourced and over-policed in a system where the lack of explicit discrimination masks the truth of continuing and ongoing disempowerment. This is the culture of white supremacy looking us square in the face. That culture is about race, make no mistake, but race is being used in this culture to protect privilege. Isabel Wilkerson's words from her book, Cast. We in the developed world are like homeowners who inherited a house that is beautiful on the outside, but whose soil is unstable, heaving and contracting over generations, cracks patched, but the deeper ruptures waved away for decades, centuries even. Not one of us was here when this house was built, but here we are, the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars or joists, but they are ours to deal with now. Cast, she writes, is the architecture of human hierarchy, the subconscious code of instructions for maintaining a 400-year-old social order. In the context of this larger culture, just addressing police killings, which we need to do, 
But addressing only the police killings would be like shoring up one of the broken joists while the cracked foundation just continues to settle. So how do we address something that is so so big and so much a part of so much of our living? At the Portland Church, we hung a large Black Lives Matter banner on our sanctuary facing a major street six or seven years ago. It was controversial then. In fact, we got so many complaint calls and hate calls that we finally wrote out a script for the volunteers who helped in the office and answered the phones. What about blue lives? Don't all lives matter? We are universalists, the script said. We care about all lives, of course, but all lives are not equally at risk today. Black Lives Matter, it pushed the envelope for many folks. But it was brilliant. It pushed limits that needed so badly to be pushed. Recently, I've been driving around Portland neighborhoods with my daughter, who has moved up from Los Angeles and is looking for a place to live. I don't know what it's like here in Austin, but in Portland, there are Black Lives Matter signs in yards everywhere. My daughter and I nod to each other when we notice a particular concentration of them in a neighborhood might be a good place for her to live. Today, Defund the police is pushing similar limits. I'm having conversations that are just as complicated. What I'm hearing are questions about safety. Who, who will keep us safe? Who will punish the bad actors? Who will we call when our safety is threatened, when the rioters come our way? I want to argue that defund the police is brilliant as well. Defund the police argues that there are better ways to ensure public safety than spending untold millions over-policing communities of color. That providing services and reducing poverty will get us all more safety than military equipment ever will. Who thought that sending heavily armed teams into domestic disputes was a wise idea? And many of us, many of us already live in communities without police. You know it, and I know it. How often do you see police cruisers and flashing lights from your front windows? As religious people, what we need most is to keep our eyes on the prize. There are some parts of our system that are so infected with the virus of racism and oppression that they simply need to be scrapped. Not all at once, and not without a new imagination and new structures to replace them, but they need to go. Their foundations are too cracked for repair. The only solution is replacement. Eyes on the prize. And what is the prize that is visible in this week, these weeks of guilty verdicts and continued killings? The prize is a society organized around human flourishing, not human punishment. The prize is a society in which the power of love has a chance to be real. The prize is the beloved community. 
Will that verdict and these days prove to be a watershed, a turning toward hope? Will we have the common sense to listen to the grandmothers who see the pain in our bravado and the confusion in our anger, the depth behind our coldness? The grandmas always look you in the eye and acknowledge the light in you with no hesitation or fear. The light in you, the light in us, all of us, black, white, brown, trans, straight, old, young, Christian, Muslim, believer or not, even Unitarian Universalists, the light in all of us. The religious task in the public square in these days and in every day is the building of life-affirming institutions. Life-affirming institutions. Grandma Love what may be hard to institutionalize? But is it really more difficult to imagine that kind of tough and tender love than to insist on keeping the system that has failed us so badly so many times? Can this be a turning point? Something more than just a chance to exhale? Esau Macaulay told his son the story of Adam Toledo's death as they drove to a baseball practice. It slipped from my lips unexpectedly, he writes. The gospel singer Kirk Franklin was playing in the background, and we sat in silence, listening to the choir praise the glories of God. In that moment, we were not just father and son, but a black boy and a black man trying to make sense of the task of living. When I could no longer wait, he goes on, I asked him, what are you thinking? He told me, sounding somber and somehow older, I want to do some good in the world to make it better. That's it, I thought. We push forward. Grandma's love wants to make your life sweeter. Yes, we push forward knowing and telling and demanding as much truth as we can bear, keeping our eyes on the prize, aiming for the most human flourishing we can imagine, and knowing that our children will imagine so much more. We keep on pushing. Macaulay concludes, At some point I will sit down with my son and tell him that justice was served in the Chauvin trial. But I am not sure that the playfulness in his voice will return. He has experienced something that has changed him. We have experienced something that has changed us, too. We came very close to chaos in that trial. Close enough for more of us to see just how high the stakes are. May we remember... What has become so clear? We already have more than enough to grieve. And more persons are being lost. There will be more persons who are damaged too. And we ourselves may well be further bruised. But perhaps, perhaps we have seen enough to hope. Grieve we must. But it's okay to breathe, and then breathe 
and breathe again until true justice is done. May that be so. And amen. I invite you to join me as we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The gospel tells us that the truth will set us free. The truth can certainly break our hearts, that much we know. But the beloved community must be built on a firm foundation. And only truth can provide that solid ground. This is the day we have been given. Let us rejoice in it and be glad. Go in peace. Practice love. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.